Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. But uh, why don't you go ahead and turn with me to, to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I want to look at this morning a uh, passage. Uh, I want to look at, uh, look, go to verse 32. Luke chapter 20, 23, verse 32. And I want to look at this. Well, well, we'll just read through this and then we'll make some comments. Verse 32. Two other men. Now this is the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, this is his trial and his crucifixion, what, what it, uh, theologians call the passion narrative, the passion of Jesus. You know, the word passion literally means to suffer. So, when, ladies, when your husband says, I'm passionate for you, that means he's willing to suffer for you. You can hold him to it. So, we read here, uh, in this scenario where Jesus is being hung on the cross, Luke adds this element. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be with, executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. A great study is to look at the words of Jesus from the cross. It really gives you a lot of insight into the nature of God. He goes on here and it says, And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Verse 35, The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, If he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. And they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then there was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. It's interesting as you read through this scenario. There's three different groups. The religious crowd, the political crowd, the military crowd, and then the condemned crowd. All three of them said to Jesus, Why don't you save yourself? That's the cry of the world. That's the nature of the world, that we're, out, we're in it for ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves. And that's the very thing that the enemy keeps us, uses, leverages to keep us from what God has for us. So he's the, the, the criminal says, if you, you know, why don't you save yourself and us? And then it says, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we just, we thank you. We thank you that you gave your only begotten son. And Jesus, we thank you that nobody took your life. Freely you gave it. And so now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd anoint my words and you'd speak to our hearts. Jesus, just as you did on the road to Emmaus, you opened the minds of the disciples so they could understand and see the word. So, Lord, we ask for the same this morning. Lord, enlighten our minds. Father, I ask that you give us a new perspective on what you did at Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I don't know if you've ever wondered, if you've ever asked yourself the question, but it really is a good question to ask, why were there three crosses at Calvary? Why did God allow there to be three crosses? I mean, this is the, the event, the, if you look at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus as one event, and it is one event, you can look at them separately, but it's really two pieces to one event. If this is the event upon which all of human history will turn, why did God allow these two criminals to bookend Jesus and to take away some of the attention from what Jesus was doing? Why were there three crosses? Now, you may think, well, come on, Pastor. You, you got to make something out of everything in the Word? Yes. <laughs> I don't believe there's anything in the Bible that is by chance. There's no coincidences in the Scripture. God orchestrated this event. So it begs the question, why did God have two other crosses bookending Jesus' cross? Could it be that those three crosses all comprised what God was doing? Could it be that these other two crosses symbolized something and speak a message to us? Well, of course they do. That's why I'm preaching on it. I wouldn't say all that and they'd say, no, I don't think so, and move on to something else. <laughs> these two crosses symbolize something else. This passage is a narrative passage. It tells a story. It's like there's a narrator. This case, it's Luke. He's standing on the side, and he's telling us what happened in the story. He's telling us from the earthly histor historical perspective that there were two other crosses. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul also spoke of two other entities being crucified at Calvary. Whereas Luke talks about it from a historical narrative perspective, he's giving us the, the, the facts from a human earthly perspective. Paul looks at it from a theological perspective and gives us some insight as to what was really going on. We see it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. And it's a famous passage where Paul said, God forbid that I should glory or I should boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, by which the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. So whereas Luke shows us that there's three crosses, Paul tells us in a symbolic, poetic way, who the other two crosses were. Who was hanging on those crosses? What were the other two entities that were crucified along with Jesus? He said, by which the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. So we see that on one of the crosses, we have the world. That at Calvary, it wasn't only Jesus that was crucified. It was actually the entire world. God was condemning all of man that's a sobering thought, but it's true. At Calvary, all of the human race stood in, stood in the, the docket, if you will, and came under the judgment of God, and God settled it once and for all at Calvary. And the world was crucified to us. But Paul also tells us that he was crucified. 
And the fact is, every born-again believer was crucified at Calvary. It's interesting that the Greek word that Paul uses in that verse, where he says, I was crucified, the world was crucified unto me, and I was crucified unto the world, the Greek word is ego. The world was crucified to ego, and ego was crucified to the world. And we need to look at it from those two perspectives because there's so much that's going on in the plan of God. Recently, we had, we, uh, we've been host, we started our first one. We host pastors and, and just do gatherings. And so we launched a new initiative. It's called the Theological Roundtable. And we just had pastors come in from a three-state area. And we sat around and talked about theology. And particularly this time, we talked about what's called atonement theories. Now, some of you be like, really? You talked? It, we took hours. It was fascinating. I sat around and talked about atonement theories. And here's the, here's the thing that we talked about, that a lot of pastors or a lot of preachers, a lot of believers, there, there are numerous atonement theories. And what, all that means is that there are theories of what God was actually doing through Christ's death. What was, what, what was God doing in atonement? And there's different theories or different models And the problem is that a lot of preachers, a lot of Christians, a lot of teachers zero in on one and say, I'm of this camp, when in actuality, no one model can capture all that God was doing. Any more than one cross can accomplish or capture all that God was doing at Calvary. Jesus died on the cross. We know that. That's why we're here. Jesus died for our sin. But there was more than Jesus dying for us. We died with him. Those are different facets of what God did in our life. And one, one lens we look at and we, we understand that we're forgiven. Uh, you know, Jesus purchased our salvation and that's a wonderful thing. But Jesus dying for us took care of our past. Us dying with him took care of our future. Watchman Nee, anybody read anything by Watchman Nee? Watchman Nee was a Chinese believer. He was an interesting guy. He, was, he died in the 70s as an elderly man after spending many years in a, in, a, in a communist prison camp in China. But he was, his ministry, his strongest ministry was back in the 20s and the 30s uh, back in China. And what had happened is he had started, he was part of this church movement. These missionaries had started planting churches. And uh, Watchman Nee felt led of the Lord to start some other churches home churches and he was kind of ostracized for it people didn't understand why he was doing this and then all of a sudden this the, a war broke out and persecution and all the missionaries left and Watchmanee had this ready-made church system that people could get into and so it was ordained of God that he could really pastor China and he was a tremendous teacher and so he's got a lot of books out there one of the books was called the normal Christian life it was a book on the book of Romans anybody ever read that it's a phenomenal book. I would encourage you to do it. Even have it on Audible. You can listen to it. it uh, but it's the normal Christian life. And he had this illustration. He, had, he was a tremendous teacher and had tremendous illustrations. And one of them was the difference between sins and sin. And his book, The Normal Christian Life, was on the book of Romans. And he brings out the fact that in the book of Romans, initially, it's talking about Jesus becoming the cure for sins. That he forgave us of our sins. The blood of Jesus took care of our sins. 
But a ways into the book, it's about chapter 5, I believe, he switches and he begins to talk, he drops the S, and Paul begins to talk about sin. And he's no longer talking about the blood being the solution for sins, he begins to talk about the cross being the solution for sin. What's he saying? He's saying that the things we did, the multiple sins, our actions, the things that got us into trouble, our sins were forgiven. The blood of Jesus took care of our sins. But we need, we need to understand there's more provision than merely the blood and forgiveness. God wants you to be more than forgiven. He wants you to be free. He wants you more than simply being free or forgiven of your past sins so that you can stand righteous before him. He's made provision so that you can live in freedom in the future. That's good news. See, I, I came, when I came to Jesus, I was a homeless alcoholic. And Jesus forgave me. And I'm grateful for that. But I'm really grateful that he also gave me power over the bottle. That I didn't just have to sin and be forgiven and sin and be forgiven and sin and be forgiven and live in this weakness. There was something in the cross that gave me power over sin in my life. Man, I tried to quit drinking many times. I went inpatient, outpatient, rehab, uppatient, downpatient, and abuse, NA, AA. I went to all of them. I spent, when I was 16 years old, I spent 30 days in a drug rehab, gained 20 pounds. I was eating. <laughs> and I got out, and I was serious. Man, I remember, I remember sitting down with the counselors, and I said, I think I'm serious. I think I really do want to quit drinking, but I'm not sure I'm just, if I'm just telling you that because you're a counselor. They looked at me like, you're a weird kid. I was trying to be honest. I was trying to sift through my twisted mind. Three days, I mean, I was, I was done with alcohol. I was done with drugs. I was going to NA and AA. Three days out of, out of drug rehab, I was with some buddies. They were passing around a bottle of whiskey, and I said, just let me smell the cap. Later on that night, I was drunk out of my mind and sent me into months again. I had tried to quit before, but it was when I met Jesus that something broke in my life. The power of God came in me to overcome sin. It wasn't me, it was him. What did Paul say? I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross. There was also another thief that died with him. And that thief, that criminal, was me. My ego was crucified with him. And the good news is there was a third one, and that was the world. He canceled out the world. And so it's the blood of Jesus gives me forgiveness. The blood of Jesus overcomes the things I did in the past. But it's the cross that delivers me from the sinner. Now Watchman Nee, back to, back to uh, Watchman Nee's teaching, he had this great illustration. Because it was around the time, uh, or a little after the time of prohibition in the United States. He used this analogy. He said, you can, you can declare war on sins. And he said, so the police can go into a store that has alcohol all down the shelves. And they can say, we're outlawing alcohol. And we're going to take all these body, bottles and they take them out on the street and they break them open in the curb. And it, all the alcohol drains down into the gutter. And so they have dealt with the individual bottles, the sins. Said so the problem is, they're going to come back next week and the shelves are going to be full of bottles of whiskey again. What needs to happen? The cross 
or the, the blood took care of the individual bottles and forgave the sins. It broke the power of the sins, but it's the cross that goes and shuts down the distillery. You see, the cross took care of the person that was producing the sins. So sins were the things we did. Sin was our nature. And something needed to happen in us. And there's many of us, we understand that I'm forget. We, we, we come into this thing of being forgiven of the things we've done, but we don't understand that God doesn't want you to live in this cycle of sinning and then being forgiven and then sinning and forgiving. There is victory over the power of sin. I look at Roger McKim this morning. I, many of you probably don't even know Roger was a meth addict. And Ed Hall, Ed, wave at everybody. Ed Hall used to go bang on his trailer door and say, you're going to church with me. And Roger would be out of his mind, all, all messed up on drugs. And there was something in him that wanted to be free. He was watching his kids grow up with a dad that was a maniac. I'll never forget the Sunday my dad called me. He, he, my dad had been preaching at Albia Open Bible. And we, we usually talk on Sunday afternoon. He said, Dave... He called me, he said, you should have been in church this morning. I said, I was. Well, not the church you were at. He said, he said I, I said, where are you at? He said, I was in Albia at the Open Bible Church preaching. I said, what happened? He said, oh my goodness. I'm in the middle of my message and this young man stands up in the back. He's half, half crying, half yelling, half running, half crawling. He comes up, makes his way to the front, bumps me out of the way and grabs a pulpit and starts just wailing. It was Roger McKim. Roger's crying out to Jesus. And God met him there. Not long after that, we met face to face. He came into Teen Challenge. And look at him today. The power of meth is broken. That's the gospel. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus died for my sins, died for me. He took me to Calvary with him. And he, he had me die with him. And it broke the power of sin in our life. That is the gospel. These two criminals that bookended Jesus. This picture of one that was unrepentant and one that was repentant. My, my son Tyler, he's, he's stationed in the army in Texas. And he, we're talking yesterday. He said, what are you going to preach on tomorrow, Dad? I said, well, I'm thinking about I said, you ever thought about why there's three crosses at Calvary? No. <laughs> I said, well, you need to. And I said, you know, there were two criminals. He said, yeah, and one wasn't repentant. I said, which one do you think? Because I told him, I said, Paul said, one is ego and one is the world. He said, yeah, but one wasn't repentant, Dad. And one was. I said, which one was repentant? He said, the wor- the, which one wasn't repentant? The world. I said, you're a good preacher. <laughs> you see, there's one that saw something that changed his heart. The other was hard-hearted. And the world, God, Jesus literally took all of the world with him to Calvary. We often don't think of this. We don't don't understand really what happened. But Romans says that God condemned or sealed all men up to disobedience. You see, from a human perspective, we look at things and we say, oh, well, what happened is Jesus, as a human being, stood before a high human court. The greatest military political power in existence in that time, one of their primary representatives, a, 
a prefect, a Roman governor by the name of Pilate, sat on a Roman throne, and Jesus stood in front of him, and he arrogantly said, Are you the king of the Jews? He was going to sit in judgment on Jesus. That's the heavenly perspective. But there was something else going on. The, the earthly perspective, rather, the earthly perspective is Pilate was sitting in judgment on him. But in the heavenly perspective, the Father was sitting in judgment on Pilate. And so Jesus turns the tables and he said, who do you say that I am? Essentially, Jesus was saying, you thought I was on trial, but Pilate, I'm here to set you in notice. You're on trial. And your answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. The entire human race was on trial. What will we do with the Son of God? The greatest expression of justice up until that time in human history was the Roman judicial system. That's where we got that phrase, innocent until proven guilty. The Roman Republic Government by representation, now it kind of degenerated over time until it became a, you know, the, uh, Caesar was looked at as God. But Rome was this grand experiment. They took the Grecian idea of a republic and began to perfect it. And, and a Roman citizen had tremendous rights, tremendous prosperity because of that governmental system. And it was that system that Jesus came up under. And there's, it's not a coincidence that Jesus, as the Son of God, stood before the Roman judicial system because it was man's sense of justice that was on trial. And what did they do? They knowingly crucified an innocent man. They were given the opportunity. If you read through the story, I was, of course, reading through it again afresh, and it just struck me all over again. The awkward place that Pilate was put in by divine design. That Pilate tried to get out of this thing, and he told him. He said, I find no fault with him. I, I tell you what, I'll give him a good whooping, and then I'm going to give him back to you, because I, th this guy's not guilty of any crime. And while the Roman judicial system is trying to get out of it, the greatest expression of religion the world had ever seen up until that time, the Jewish religion, was knowingly railroading an innocent man to the cross. So much so that in the end, they, they said, give us Barabbas. Give us this guy who's guilty of insurrection. And Caesar knew better. Caesar was giving some, giving, letting a man go that was an enemy of Rome to knowingly crucify an innocent man. And Jesus stood there, opened out his mouth as a lamb goes to slaughter. Why? Because they were on trial. The entire human race was being weighed in the balances and found wanting. The world was being crucified. Pilate tried to get out of it. His own wife told him, listen, I've had a dream. I've suffered in a dream over this. And any guy knows, man, if your wife's telling you, you better, you know, you're really in trouble, you know. It, his job's on the line. His wife's got a, had a dream. And you ever had your wife get mad over a dream? I mean, this, you know, this is not good. You know, it's, we're, things are, things are tense. And here, they knowingly railroad an innocent man to the cross. They sealed all, God sealed all men up to disobedience so that he could show mercy to all. You see, the way God did it is he pulled the rug out from any ability for us to feel self-righteous. 
Because nobody comes to God based on their own righteousness. It's not by works that man can be saved, but by God's grace lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, 9 and 10. God sealed us all up to disobedience. So from God's perspective, he looks at the entire human race as dead. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. While we were yet sinners, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about how God, that, well, let's read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read you this verse. It's an interesting verse. And sometimes people come to the wrong conclusion in reading this verse. It's important we understand what Paul is really saying. Look at verse chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 15. And he died for all. Well, look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What it's saying is that when Jesus died as a man, all of the human race was condemned to death. The entire human race stood before God's judicial system and God found us wanting and he dropped the gavel. And when Jesus died, he died as a man and all the human race was sentenced to death in him. Why? So that we could all be shown mercy. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live He died for all so that those who live. Now there are people who come to the conclusion that because Jesus died for all, then everyone must be saved. And that's not the truth. Everybody has been sentenced to death, but not everybody enters into his resurrection. We enter into his resurrection by faith, by surrendering ourselves to him, by doing what this this condemned thief did. It's a fascinating thing that these two thieves are hanging there and one is just like the rest of the crowd. His heart is hard. And as he's hanging there dying, suspended over hell, he's mocking the Son of God, clueless of what he's doing. I mean, how hard do you have to be? As you're you're hanging there dying, you're mocking a guy that's been sentenced to death next to you. But he's mocking Jesus and that is the world. And so God condemns the world. He seals the fate of the entire world so that those who will receive him will come into salvation. Last night, they had it on again. They do it every year. The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I love those old Hollywood movies. They're so dramatic. They're always standing so dramatic and talking the way they talk. And, you know, it's so dramatic. It's a great movie. I used to wonder... Why do they show the Ten Commandments at Easter? Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, are you serious? You really wonder? I did. I wondered, why do they show the Ten Commandments at Easter? I thought, well, it's just because it's a religious holiday and Hollywood just gets religious. No. Obviously, I was missing it. The reason that they show the Ten Commandments at Easter is because the Ten Commandments is about the Passover. It's about how God delivered Israel out of bondage. So we have all this symbolism in the Old Testament. If we had a whiteboard up here, I could write it out for you. You have, the, you have Pharaoh, who is, symbolizes Satan. 
Slavery symbolizes sin. Egypt symbolizes the world. We were in bondage in sin in the world. So what was God's answer? He sent the sacrificial lamb. And when the lamb was slain and the blood was painted on the doorposts, we were liberated and we went through an exodus. We were free from sin. We, the, God broke the back of the most powerful kingdom on planet earth at that time. They literally plundered Egypt. It said they walked out with gold and jewelry and money. The people were just like, take everything we have, just get out. They plundered the greatest kingdom on earth without ever lifting a sword. It's an amazing story. And the story goes on. 50 days later, they got the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments where Moses or Charlton Heston's on the mountain. He's hiding. I don't know if that's the way it really happened, but that's cool. You know, I mean, as a little kid, that is, you know, that's, just, that's just a great tool. God's writing with his finger. Moses comes down and now he's gray. You know, I love that. Hallelujah. You know, it's, it's a sign of having been with the Lord. Well, if we have this scenario here and the symbolism, what does the 50 days after the Exodus represent? They received the, the Ten Commandments after, 50 days after the Passover lamb and 50 days after Calvary and the Passover lamb, you and I received what? The baptism in the Holy Spirit. Whereas they were led by law, you and I are led by the Spirit. They, were, they had an external command that they could not live up to. That was to drive them to Christ. You and I have a living Spirit that comes to live the life inside of us. We're going to do a series on the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming up here. We'll just, we'll, we'll unpack that. Because there's so many times that we look at it as just this, we look at it through one or two lenses. And there's a whole lot going on there in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But all of this symbolism, it's beautiful. But if you go back to the Passover and look at what God was doing through Charlton Heston, I mean Moses. And uh, you look at that scenario, literally the... The, the death of the firstborn was coming on the entire nation. It was the judgment on the entire system that they were living under. Matter of fact, each one of these plagues was a judgment against a different God that Egypt had. There was one God. You can see pictures of it. You can look it up online. There's this one God with a frog's head. Why you would ever worship anything with a frog's head, I don't understand. But there, there's, there's different ones. And so the, the judgments or the plagues of God judged these different gods that they put their trust in until finally it culminated with the death of the firstborn. But there was a way out. The way out was to paint the blood on the doorpost. And it says rather than passing through their door to kill the firstborn, God would pass over that door. And it was a picture of God condemning the world. These people who had oppressed the, the, the Israelites for 400 years in just tremendous oppression and treated them uh, terribly, now they had come under the judgment. But there was, there was space for them to come in to the goodness of God by converting and getting under the blood. And it's all a picture of what God did for you and I. The irony is the very thing that was judgment to some was deliverance to others. A couple of years ago, I was meditating on this verse and it just really struck me. 
Way back in the book of Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, he said, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's a sobering statement, especially when you look at our track records. And God meant that as a warning of the consequence of sin. But to eyes of faith, ears of faith, it wasn't only a pronouncement of the consequences of sin, it was a hint at the cure. Way in the beginning, before man had even sinned, Scripture says that Jesus was crucified from the foundations of the earth. And even before man had fallen, God had made provision to bring us back into relationship with himself. And when we stand on the pre-Jesus side of the cross, we understand the soul that sins shall surely die. That is, a, that is a sobering reality. We stand on the other side of the cross after salvation. We realize it was a promise of our deliverance. The death of the Passover lamb, that whole scenario, it was death to the world, but deliverance to the people of God. And the way that God delivers us is through the cross, through the death of the cross. It was through Jesus' death for us, but also through our death with him is what frees us and breaks the back of that thing. But we need to be like the servant that saw something in Jesus nobody else saw. Whereas the one criminal mocked Jesus, said, if you're really the Christ, why don't you save yourself and us? He's joining in with all the mockery that's going on around the cross. I can't even imagine. But what really blows my mind is there's this other guy hanging there. And listen to what he says. Let's read it again. Luke 23, listen to what he says. But the, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence... Something happened to him. The fear of the Lord came upon him. What happened to this guy that would cause him to fear the Lord and stand against everything that was going on around him? He said, since you are under the same sentence and we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Something was going on in that scenario that it all came driven home to this man and he realized, I deserve what I'm getting. I am a sinner. I deserve this crucifixion. But he saw something in Jesus throughout this scenario. Now, we don't know if he knew who Jesus was prior to this. Probably. We know that Herod, Jesus went, stood before Pilate. Pilate stood, took, sent him over to Herod because these different Roman governors, different Roman kings under the emperor, who was the king of kings in their, their system, uh, Jesus was from the area where Herod the less, that was the, one of the sons of Herod the great uh, at Jesus' birth, was now ruling. And so Pilate sends him over there, and it says that Herod was really glad to see him, to see Jesus, because he'd heard of him and really wanted to meet him. He wanted Jesus to do some miracle. Like, do something, impress me. And when Jesus wouldn't, he had him beaten and dressed up in a purple robe and put thorns on his head, and they just mocked him and then sent him back to Pilate. I always find it interesting. It says, the very next thing it says in the text is, and Pilate and Herod became friends that day. 
For prior to this, they had always been at enmity with one another. They'd been enemies. You see, there's something about when Jesus comes on the scene. All of a sudden, there's a polarizing effect. You don't just stand neutral about Jesus. When you really see him for who he is, you either fall down and worship him, the fear of God comes on you like this guy, or you stand with the crowd and say, crucify him. There's no neutrality here. And opposing groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were always at odds against one another, suddenly coalesced around this, this uh, the, the, being against Jesus. Herod and Pilate, who were against each other, coalesced in a relationship together with the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, who that was always at odds with them. And pretty soon they're all together in this thing. And out of everybody around the cross, we know that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, we know that John, the youngest disciple, which is interesting, the kid from the youth group, the pastors, the elders, all hightailed it out of there. Peter, the one that's supposed to stand, he's, he's kind of the, the uh, unofficial leader of the disciples, and he curses and says, I don't know him. But John, the youth, the youth group leader, stands with Jesus at the cross. But we don't know what they understood. After Jesus' resurrection, they still seem to not understand really what's going on until Jesus shows up in the flesh and, and, and begins to unpack it for them. Out of all the people around the cross, the, the religious leaders who had, many of them would have had literally the whole Torah, the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament, memorized word for word. They didn't understand what was really going on here. The, the, the Roman government surely didn't understand. But even the disciples that had walked with Jesus for three years didn't understand. But here's this one guy hanging here, and what does he say? He looks over at Jesus, and he says, I mean, what a picture. They're, just, they're beaten and bloody. And the one guy, he's joining the crowd, and he's laughing at Jesus. Hey, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us. Everybody's jeering him, but one person stands with Jesus. He's hanging there, and he he leans his head over and looks at Jesus. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood something nobody else did. His repentance granted him revelation. Jesus was not some dying victim on a cross. He was a victor taking his kingdom. Nobody else understood it. Isn't it amazing that God chose this condemned criminal who by his own word says, I deserve what I'm getting today. And he rebukes his buddy over there. He rebukes him and says, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. And he looks at Jesus and he said, please remember me. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says directly to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I'm just surmising. I'm I'm guessing. But I think the way that this man came to that conclusion was he began to watch as they were going down what's known as the Via Dolorosa. He's carrying his cross, and it's too much for him to bear. You realize Jesus' cross was too much for him to carry. 
So somebody, Simon of Cyrene, had to carry it for him. He's broken. But this man watched as Jesus responded to everyone. The women are wailing and Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And those final words, he's saying, Father, forgive them as he's hanging there. And they watch, this, this criminal watches all these selfless things. And something dawns on him. The rumors I've heard about this guy doing miracles, this, the claim that some say he's the Messiah, even the Son of God, what he's seeing lines up with that. And everybody else mocked him, but there's something about his behavior that converted this guy. There was repentance. It convicted him. He began to see his, his behavior compared to Jesus' behavior. And he said, I'm getting what I deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He saw his sin and he saw the holiness of Jesus. And it brought him to repentance. This this whole story, there are so many angles that you can study redemption, the death of Jesus through. There are libraries that have been written on this thing. We will never exhaust what we can get out of this story. But one facet of the death of Christ is that God in his brilliance figured out a way to kill the sinner in us but preserve us. That we can make it through so that Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. So when Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, that verse where he gives us the name of the two criminals, ego and the world, he said, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. God forbid that I should boast about anything You see, it's the same heart attitude as this criminal hanging on the cross. He realizes, man, I got my just desserts. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. For years, I I worked at Teen Challenge. Most of you know that. Those that you don't know, Teen Challenge is a a Christian drug rehab. It's it's really a discipleship program for people with life-controlling problems. And usually the people that would come into Teen Challenge were people that came from my background, alcoholics, drug addicts, and all kinds of other addictions. And, And those, you know, you don't compartmentalize that stuff. It begins to infect every area of your life, and your life just disintegrates. And so people would come to us usually... Because their life had just imploded and they had burned bridges and, you know, they were alienated from most of their family and friends. And they came as a last resort and God would set many of them free, those that would surrender. But it wasn't uncommon when when they would come into the program. I would always sit down with a student when they were coming in and spend about an hour with them. I always wanted to hear their story. I'd make them a cup of coffee and I'd say, hey, tell me your story. And it was interesting. 99% would say the long version or the short version. And I'd say the long version. And they would tell me their story. And usually a good majority of students would say this. You know, I'm really a good person. I just, I had, you know, I got caught up in drugs. But I'm really a good person. And I would realize they're not ready yet. They're not going to make it yet. They haven't hit bottom yet. 
And some of them were ready to hear it. And I would explain to them, just mirror back to them the story they just told me, and explain to them, a good person doesn't do what you did. You were willing to walk over the face of your grandmother to use drugs. You chose your pleasure over the feelings of the people that loved you the most. You think, wow, that's kind of harsh. No, that's, that's requirement for deliverance to happen. If we don't own our sin, we can't be forgiven of it. And the depth of your repentance is equal to the depth of revelation that you have of your need for God. If you have a shallow revelation of your need, you're going to have shallow repentance, and you will end up with a shallow, anemic walk with God. Because there's going to be all this stuff underneath the surface. Frank Bartleman was a a famous revivalist in the Azusa Street Revival, had been a journalist and became a, a prayer warrior. They prayed in the Azusa Street Revival at the turn of the last century, 1904, 1905, in Los Angeles. And it was really the revival that touched the world, the Assemblies of God, the Open Bible, Church of God in Christ, you know, Foursquare. All of these Pentecostal movements came out of that revival. Tremendous move of God. Literally hundreds of millions of souls have come out of that move of God. But he made a statement about the early days of that revival. He said, he said, I found that we would pull people prematurely from the womb of conviction and have to incubate them from then on. He said, we didn't allow them to really be convicted because we felt this, essentially what he was saying is this unsanctified compassion that wants to rescue people from feeling bad and it leaves them in a situation where they're going to keep feeling bad. We've got to come to the place like this thief hanging on the cross that realizes, I deserve death. And it's only when we really see that that we're willing to side with God against ourselves and get free from that, that person that produced that behavior. So it's not just that Jesus died for us and we have forgiveness. He died in our stead. He calls you to pick up your cross and follow him to the cross so that you can be delivered from that behavior. And I'm afraid in this day and age, we don't emphasize that element enough. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God is the power of God to overcome sin. It's not just the power of God to forgive us of our sin. It's the power of God for us to live free from it. And so... What precipitated the revelation for this this guy hanging on the cross that Jesus, unlike everybody else there, looking at Jesus as a victim being sentenced to death, he was a victor coming into what this criminal said, your kingdom. It's amazing. He understood that Jesus was by his death seizing his kingdom. But what precipitated that, he saw his sinfulness and God's holiness. And we need to see that in order for us to come into the fullness of God. Because at Calvary, it wasn't just Jesus hanging and dying. There was a thief on each side. It was our ego and the world. The world... Condemned. God sealed us all to disobedience. 
so that he can bring us in to, to mercy. But we've got to be like that repentant sinner and turn from our sin and admit before God, God, I need you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. But Lord, we also understand you called us to pick up our cross and die as well. But Lord, if we don't see ourselves for what we are apart from you, we will not side against ourselves. So Lord, I'm asking God that you would bring clarity to us. Help us to see things for what they are. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.